What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port in of number not currently active on T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Welcome back to another episode of the Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with Dan Favalli and Andy Bailey. And we are going to continue moving along with our season previews division by division. We've already covered the Central and the Atlantic in the Eastern Conference, and we're moving on to the Southeast. It's the home of the Atlanta Hawks, the Charlotte Hornets, the Washington Wizards, the Orlando Magic, and the Miami Heat. So we will jump right into it as we are doing in every show, um, starting at the bottom, working our way to the top. We have not discussed these rankings beforehand, so everything is happening organically. But I think we can probably all agree that one team is at the bottom. Yeah, I'm going to go with the Magic for my fifth place team. Um, I don't know. I, I I feel like they added some talent. I don't. I didn't really like the Serge Ibaka for Oladipo trade, and and the talent that they did add is all sort of in that front court jumble. That's hi. It's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the. Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now this mess that I don't know how they're going to sort out. They've they've talked about playing Aaron Gordon at the three, which I think is the wrong way to sort it out. Uh, but it may be the only way. So um, there's just there's way more questions than answers with that team. Most of the guys that are kind of exciting are probably still too young to really push the needle uh, positively too far. And uh, so they're they're kind of a clear fifth to me. Same here. It, you know what's even more bizarre is can, do you guys see this front court mismatch being broken up at all during the season? Because I, I think if you're the Magic, just looking at it, c- can you trade uh, Nikola Vucevic when you don't know if Serge Ibaka is even going to come back after next year? Granted, you can offer him the most money, but this seems like one of those situations where the Magic are going to be stuck with this logjam because you, you can't really break it up without committing to a rebuild or knowing if Serge Ibaka is going to come back at that point. I don't know what their offense is going to look like. I think it's going to be terrible. Their defense could be insane when you have Biombo and Ibaka and Gordon on the court at the same time, but they don't have enough shooters. Uh, the only thing I really like about this team, uh, aside from hoping that Super Mario Hazonia gets some more spin this year, Evan Fournier's contract was absurdly good for them, that five-year deal. 
And I think he is going to be good for this team. But again, I, I wonder if his offense will drop off a little bit when he has so much less space to operate. But I think that's the one thing you point to as a win for them this offseason is, hey, they got uh, Evan Fournier locked up for the next four years with a player option on the fifth. And it's one hell of a deal. Yeah, I don't really think there's any way to work their way out of this front court logjam here just because of the way everything was acquired. You know, they just got Jeff Green. They just got Bismack Biombo. They just got Steven Zimmerman. Uh, they're still trying to build around Aaron Gordon. And Nikola Vucevic is supposed to be one of the centerpieces of this team. So it, I don't think this pretty young front office led by Rob Hennigan is going to want to admit defeat this quickly. Uh, I can't really see any big blockbuster deals happening with any of those pieces. So I think they're just going to have to ride it out, see what happens, and then reevaluate in the offseason. And we're going to get yet another piece from Zach Lowe on what direction the Magic are rebuilding in. Do you know it's kind of, I guess, bizarre? Would the optics be completely different if they targeted or took a different approach in free agency? Like, what if they went really hard after, let's say, like Kent Bazemore, and we're willing to give him? I know he took slightly less to stay in Atlanta, but what if you go after Kent Bazemore and you can get him and you plug him into this rotation instead of Bismack Biombo? That kind of changes everything. And to Adam's point about them not being able to dig themselves out, even if they wanted to, where they were like, we're confident Ibaka's coming back, let's trade Vucevic, they might run into the same issue that the Bucks have sort of had with Greg Monroe in moving him. It helps that Vucevic is younger. It helps that he's cheaper. It helps that his contract is longer. But it, as we've seen in today's NBA, you have to be in a really specific spot if you're a big man who can pass and score but doesn't really do much else and doesn't shoot threes. So they're sort of just pigeonholed to this model. And I can't help but think that the Biombo move, while maybe I wasn't comfortable with them giving up Zabonis and Oladipo and Ilyasova for Baca in the first place, I can't help but thinking if you go after another wing, another 3 and D guy, their offseason might have looked completely different for so much better. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. That was the the Oladipo for Ibaka trade was a head scratcher. When I heard about Biombo, I was I I had absolutely no idea what they were doing. Um you can you could justify the trade in some ways, but I there was just no getting around that Biombo deal making no sense. I don't. I don't know what they were doing. Can either of you rationalize it in any way? It seems like they were just, you know, the the best player available strategy in the draft applied to free agency, where he might have been like the best player in a vacuum that they could get for a reasonable yeah. contract. So they just went and did it. Like that Biombo contract isn't bad. I'm not mad at him getting 17 million a year, but for this roster, after that Abaca trade. And you could, in a vacuum, you could justify that Ibaka trade. Oladipo is younger, but he sort of plateaued in Orlando alongside Alfred Payton. And he's not that and much younger either. I think Ibaka's only like 26. He is. And Ibaka has a 10-year-old daughter, I learned today while reading his piece for The Cauldron on SI.com slash Medium. That was pretty interesting. But is going to be a restricted free agent, so you're going to have to pay him anyway. So they might have been looking at it's going to be harder for us to find someone who protects the rim and spaces the floor, in theory at least, than it is to get another ball-dominating guard with an iffy jump shot. So you could justify that, but again, this Biombo acquisition turns everything upside down, and now you can't justify both moves together. You could talk about them separately, but when you combine them, 
this roster doesn't look like it's going to be very good. And Frank Vogel, in that Zach Lowe piece, I believe referenced that Orlando wants to use Aaron Gordon similar to the way that Indiana uses Paul George. Yeah, And Gordon has yet to prove that he's the same type of passer. He's yet to prove that he's even close to the same type of shooter. And to sort of ask him to turn into this playmaker is a really drastic task just because he never projected as that guy. I think even the optimistic profiles, you look at him and say at his rawest, he might be someone who could maybe space the floor and protect the rim, but that makes him better suited as a four or small ball five. This small forward stuff is coming completely out of nowhere. I guess I like that Gordon seems to be accepting the role and is excited about getting to handle the ball because it means that he's not going to go into the season with negative thoughts, but it it feels like they're hampering his development by not letting him play at the position he really should be at. So before all of this offseason stuff happened, I would have felt fairly confident thinking that Gordon had a chance to become the best player on this roster by the end of 2016-17. Who is it now? Like, who's the best player on this team? I, that's a good question. I, I'm kind of with you on that point on Aaron Gordon. Like, before the Biombo deal, I was having visions of, like, a, a Gordon-Ibaka front court with Vucevic kind of as, like, an Ennis Cantor-type sixth man. And I thought that was Ooh. a really interesting three-man big rotation. But you're right. I think it does kind of uh, pigeonhole his um, value, for lack of a better term, moving him to the three. I guess if I had to pick somebody that would be the best player this season and I'm not totally confident about it, I'd maybe say Fournier. Um, I'm totally confident in saying Fournier. Yeah, me too. I, Interesting I, fact about him. If you look through the, all the sport view data on NBA.com, he's one of the few players that is above average in literally every single category, whether it's transition offense, isolation, spotting up, posting up, handling in a pick and roll. Hmm. Every single situation, he's above average, and most of them, he's at least in the 70th percentile. Like he's a really, really good, versatile offensive player. The, o- the only thing that I guess should worry us about him is some of those plays worked out best because he had a little bit extra room. Oladipo was an okay shooter sure. last year. Uh, you had Gordon playing some. You had Gordon playing four, and I think he even spent some time at the five, if I'm not mistaken. Is that space going to be there for him to attack off the dribble? Because on paper, unless Aaron Gordon and Alfred Payton make leaps as jump shooters and unless Abaka proves that he can hit these open jumpers or excuse me jumpers that aren't so open because of Russell Westbrooks and Kevin Durant's drives and kicks where is he going to go those spot-up looks aren't going to be available he'll face more double teams Uh, defenses will be able to pack the paint and wall him off but I think when you look at this roster he's clearly their best player right now just because he does Everything that they need, which is also everything that pretty much everyone else in that starting lineup won't. So where do we have this team then? I mean, 35 wins last year. You look at a roster filled with so many young players that have upside, and it's easy to think, like, they're getting much better. I'm not sure they do. I kind of see them stagnating and and struggling to get right back to that 35-win benchmark. Yeah. Is their defense even going to be good? Their offense is going to be terrible. It just depends guess. on the rotation, right? We haven't even mentioned Jeff Green, who has typically <laughs> do, made do teams we... worse when he's on the court. Listen, here's what's going to happen with Jeff Green. is He's going to end up on the Clippers, and the Magic <laughs> going to have a first-round pick or something. 
Watch Jeff Green like eventually be the guy that they try to make into Pop George, and they move Aaron Gordon to like backup four. He plays fifteen to twenty minutes a night. I will be outraged. I don't think Frank Vogel would do that, would he? I think he's probably smarter than that. But what I mean, what else do you do with Jeff Green? You play him fifteen minutes. You a don't night sign off the bench? him to a fifteen million dollars. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think Dan has the right idea Un- there. Unfortunately, they already blew that. That, that was clearly that had nothing. I'm stuttering here, but that was clearly a move where they were like, hey, we're going to give him all this money and hopefully he'll be a, a nice trade trip, a trade chip at the deadline. There's no way they looked at Jeff Green and said, yeah, this is a good $15 million gamble because we think he can help our team. There's no way that they envision him well, being this contributor all this year. Is the I'm same not front holding. office that did the Biombo deal, so who knows? Uh, I would. <laughs> But I, just, I think the difference there is that the Biombo deal is is okay in a vacuum. The Jeff Green deal just isn't in any situation. Yeah. Like, under no circumstances in any cap climate, given what we know about Green, should you be paying him $15 million? Unless you're paying him to sit on the bench exclusively. Right. Or exclusively and where are you, to, like, to coax Doc into making a trade, like Dan said. Or if you're a Chinese team. Well, and that's the other thing. My theory is just incredibly flawed because where are you trading this guy? If you do go after him, it's for a contract that's going to be super crappy. So Jeff Green or like Nikola Pekovic? Like, is that what it will come to? How many times has the Jeff Green Memorial trade deadline deal happened? Like three? I have no idea. Maybe Orlando was hoping that Portland is going to get sick of Evan Turner at the trade deadline and that he's going to be a horrible fit. And they can just be like, hey, we'll give you Jeff Green. But we are now at the risk of turning this into an exclusively Orlando Magic podcast well, episode. I have, so. I do have a final question with them, though. How Their offense, let's assume it's going to be bad. Is their defense going to even be good? Well, let's assume the rotation is Vucevic is starting with Ibaka, Gordon at the three, Peyton and Fournier in that lineup. You have Biombo coming off the bench. Can Gordon stick with opposing threes full-time? Yeah. Is yeah. this going to be a good defense? I think that's the saving grace. Especially because Peyton, when he was back at Louisiana Lafayette, profiled as a plus defender in the NBA. Hasn't happened yet, but that could absolutely become the case at any point. For them? Um, I don't really see that many glaring weaknesses, especially because Vucevic seems to be becoming a little bit more comfortable playing like the Pau Gasol-style defense where he's good at defending his one area and just has no mobility at all. Uh, So given the presence of some backups like Biombo. Um, maybe some improvement from Peyton. And I do believe in Gordon at the three. I think that this is the one strength of the team. I think for them to improve on 35 wins, though, they're gonna, that's, it's going to have to be a serious strength, like a top 10 type of strength. I, I would say top five if they want to improve upon 35. Yeah, I'm not wins. sure they're going to get over 35. I mean, I feel like it's more of a around 30 win team. Yeah, I would agree. Between thirty and thirty-five feels right. I would be sh- I would be really surprised if they won more than thirty-five games. Same. Not even just like, oh hey, I didn't expect that. I I would be absolutely floored. Yeah. yeah. All right, I think we've wrapped up the magic. Um, who who do we have going fourth? What do you guys have going there? I think I'm going to have the other magical team in the division, which would be the Washington Wizards. Yeah. Really. Um, yeah, I, I think it's more because I like the other three teams than that I don't like this one. Um, they made some good good moves over the offseason. They kind of had to re-sign Bradley Beal, even though I don't think he's worth that type of money yet. Um, John Wall agrees with you. Yeah, exactly. Um, Jan Mahimi, I think, is a fantastic backup center for them. He was super underrated uh, last year in Indiana. 
Um, and then just natural improvement from the young guys again, having a full season of Marquise Morris, who is back in a starting role and should actually be motivated to play basketball instead of cause problems. Uh, I think you're, you're looking at a team that's probably right around 500, maybe slightly above it again. Um, but it's more about the other three teams for me than this team being bad. Here's my take on the Wizards. They played like a postseason team after that Marquise Morris squad, if you look at their net rating and their performance. And now they added Jan Mahimi, who, who is instantly the best backup center of basketball, right? Whereas maybe Yosef Nurkic. Uh, who is better backup than Mahimi right now? That's a good question. Can't say I've thought about that one before, but... It's probably Anyhow, him. And Boban he... in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you're adding him. I really... I shouldn't say like, I believe in Andrew Nicholson. I think that he can turn into something in Washington. I think he'll get an opportunity to do so. And then you just mix in some growth from Kelly Oubre and Otto Porter, hopefully. Even if Otto Porter goes laterally, that's just good for this team. And they should be, in my mind, probably around the 45-plus win territory. And personally, I don't know how you put them above the heat. I mean, behind the heat right now, just because I like a lot about Miami's roster. And I think the offense could end up being not just better, but a lot better without Dwayne Wade. You don't know what's happening with Chris Bosh, though. How is Hassan Whiteside going to be without Dwayne Wade? There aren't a whole lot of guys who are skilled at running the pick and roll with him right now. You have Goran Dragic, but who else? We didn't really see chemistry develop between him and Richardson or Winslow or or Tyler Johnson last year. That That's a big question mark. You don't necessarily know what their defense is going to be like, and their depth is a little bit weird. And then the biggest thing for me is what's going on with Chris Bosh. Are they better with him? Are they better without him? I just, they could end up... Well, they're better with him. Let's get that out of the way first. For their, for the way they want to play, though, I, I do wonder with the way they played last season where you had Luel Dang spending some time at the five or playing Joe Johnson at the four... Chris Bosh isn't really conducive to that. If you're just going to, in a vacuum, and we've said vacuum, I think, like 15 times on this podcast. Sponsored by Dyson. (laughs) Chris Bosh makes them better on paper. But is he good for the way they want to play with Hassan Whiteside already in the game? You can stagger their minutes, and, and then you can talk about that. But can he stay healthy then? There are too many question marks here, more so than there are in Washington for me, to say that, oh, hey, Miami's going to be better than the Wizards. I I think that they're going to be the fourth-best team uh, in in this division next year, and maybe they'll get better as time goes on because they have some of these young guys, but I would be really surprised if they have a better record than Charlotte, Atlanta, uh, or Washington, either of those three. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Dan. I I actually think Miami's going to be fourth, too, and I don't dislike the roster because I think – Kind of what you mentioned, I like the idea of Josh Richardson instead of Dwayne Wade in that starting lineup, more shooting. Um, I like Justice Winslow maybe taking on a bigger role, maybe playing some four if Chris Bosh isn't healthy, like you kind of alluded to. Um, But I think relying on two second-year guys uh, is a a slightly more dicey proposition than John Wall, um, than than Gortak Mahinmi, who we mentioned, Markeith Morris, who fit in well in Washington. I just like the way the pieces fit there. And, and for me personally, I'm still um, – it, it feels to me like a lot of people have kind of jumped off the John Wall bandwagon if he ever had one. I, I still have a lot of 
faith in him. I think he's an extremely talented player on both ends of the floor. Uh, and really between these two rosters, to me, he might be the best individual player. I don't disagree with that. Uh, I think this is probably going to be like the fourth straight year I've predicted that John Paul averages 20 points and 10 assists. But I think this is just a case of me liking the individual pieces in Miami more than you guys do. Um, I don't, I mean, I can't really argue with much of what, you, what you're saying here, but I think Hassan Whiteside absolutely thrives in this role. Um, he, he just got paid, but he still has to prove that he deserves that money. Um, I think he's going to be super motivated to go out and just absolutely dominate in 32, 33 minutes a game. Love what Josh Richardson brings as a 3 and D guy. Um, I expect a big leap from Justice Winslow. Goran Dragic looks like he's becoming more comfortable, and he's going to get to handle the ball even more without Wade there. So I really, I, I really just like almost everything about this roster, even the, even the backups with Tyler Johnson uh, looking good before he hurt his shoulder. I think this is a great spot for Deion Waiters to get to play on a second unit that actually needs him to score. James oh, Johnson wow. is there to play defense. Um, I totally forgot Dion, which makes me feel just a little bit worse about the Miami Heat. That's not even, <laughs> I'm not even taking a pot shot at Dion. It's just when, when you mix in what it seems like they're going for, small uh, off-ball movement, play fast waiters has never really done that he, he improved as a catch and shoot guy last year with oklahoma city but there's no one on the heat that's going to get him shots like durant and westbrook did no but, but i think the point is that he gets to handle the ball and is actually going to be asked to be kind of that jamal crawford role he's going to be asked to be a pseudo Dwayne wade which i don't actually think works for this team anymore with how they want to and should play i think the more minutes you could throw at Dragic, johnson and richardson oh sure the better sure. I have, an, I have a point about uh, Dragic. I actually looked this up kind of like a month ago. Um, this, is, this is a positive for Miami. He, per 36 minutes when Dwayne Wade was not on the floor, Dragic averaged 19 points, 6.8 assists, 4.8 rebounds, and had a true shooting percentage of 54. So he was significantly better when he didn't have to share the floor and the ball with Wade. So I think we could see a little bit of a bounce back here for him. I, he's like deceptively old. So um, I think people <laughs> thinking he's going to get back to the, the, the season that he had in Phoenix yeah. when he was he, he, incredible, that 25 and five year that he had. I don't think that's going to happen, um, but he's certainly going to be more productive than he was last season. I think that will help them. My, my other thing with Miami, and I, I think what Adam said really lends merit to this, they seem like they could have one really good lineup when you look at having Goran Dragic, Tyler Johnson, Josh Richardson, Justice Winslow, and Hassan Whiteside on the floor at once. That profiles as an elite yeah, lineup. I like that lineup too. You can swap out Whiteside with Bosch, and you can even get by with Whiteside and Bosch on the court at the same time. But the pieces outside those six guys or, or those five guys, it's just weird how they fit. I don't think you look at their bench and see any type of spacing. Derek Williams is not a good shooter. He got to the foul line a bunch with the Knicks, but he was never really good, and he was only good when you gave him some volume, which I'm not sure Miami's in a position to do with Deion Waiters on the roster as well. So the, so the parts outside that core of those five or six guys, and I, I think at this point you have to go with just the five because we don't know what's going on with Chris Bosh, aside from the fact that he believes he's healthy and ready to hoop. And then you go over to Washington's roster. There's a bunch of different lineups there that you can mix and match and really like play big, play small. There just seems to be more depth and more potential successful combinations there to me. I guess I don't think that Washington has any lineups that can match how good that potential Miami starting five is, or really even if you sub in Josh McRoberts for Chris Bosh. 
I don't think they have anything that can match that starting lineup. Uh, and that's the difference for me. And I'm not saying Miami is going to be head and shoulders better than this Wizards team. You know, I, I think like Washington. <laughs> I think Washington finishes right around 500, and Miami is a few games over. I would probably put Miami around 38 to 41, and I'm going to have Washington between 45 and 48. I would go a little lower on both. I'd I'd have Miami. Such a pessimist. <laughs> I got to leave a lot of wins for the Cavaliers. Um, that's fair. Got, They're going to be in cruise control for the next decade. That's true. But I, I just see Miami as like a high 30s and Washington is low 40s. I think there's going to be another bunch of teams in the East like there was last year. All those teams tied at 48 and 34. I think there's going to be another bunch like that. But they're going to be like four or five wins lower. So that's three and four, I guess. That, that's fair. Uh, the, the bigger problem for me is what's the two and three? I, I'm like... I don't know where to put the Wizards, personally. I'm not even thinking that they're third. I kind of look at the Charlotte Hornets roster, and I really worry about them. People forget about how good Michael K. Gilchrist is, and he should help them keep their defense intact. But you lost Jeremy Lin. You lost Courtney Lee. You should be able to replace Al Jefferson. But can you count on Kemba Walker to shoot threes like he did last year? Same goes for Marvin Williams. Is Cody Zeller ready to be your full-time starting five there's a lot more questions with a team that flirted with winning 50 victories last season than there should be especially when you factor in mkg coming back and and i'm not particularly fond of their bench ramon sessions is a downgrade over jeremy lynn at this point i'm not sure how marco bellinelli will fit in he didn't shoot too well with the kings but those are the kings i'm inclined to put them third right now and i'm a big fan of marvin williams Kemba Walker, if MKG can develop his jump shot, finally, that'll be a huge boon. But I'm just looking at them, and they seem, for some reason, inferior to the team they fielded last year. I actually like Charlotte a lot. I was going to save them for later, a little bit of foreshadowing. Um, So I'll let Adam kind of dig in on that. Well, that's a problem because I was going to do the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I, so I'll explain why I Did like. I really leave you guys that speech? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I'm genuinely surprised that um, you have a third or a second, potentially third. I think they're most – like I get that they lost Jeremy Lin. Um, I get that Michael Kidd-Gilchrist is coming back from injury. I get that Cody Zeller hasn't been like – Zeller hasn't been stellar. I didn't mean to do that, but um, – <laughs> <laughs> they all their most important guys came back. I think I think getting Batum at the price that they did was awesome. Um, Marvin Williams, it's going to be hard for him to recreate what he did last season, but I think a lot of why he was so good is um, Steve Clifford really figured out how to use him better than any coach has, and I think that he's settled into a role that's just perfect for him. Um, I think MKG settles in really well into that role and and Kemba Walker um just seems like he's finally kind of found a rhythm in the NBA it took him a long time and and yes I think it's fair for you to be skeptical of whether or not he can maintain the the efficiency that he had last season but everything just seems to fit to me uh on that roster I think there's some questions in the front court like how much do you play Roy Hibbert how much do you play Frank Kaminsky but for the most part, that, that starting five is is so well-balanced to me. 
They worked so well together last year. I think Batum's awesome as a point forward along Kimball Walker, so he can be more of a score first guy sometimes. Um, I, I really like the Hornets, and I'll, I'll spoil what I what I alluded to earlier. I think they they're probably going to finish first in this division. I agree, and I'm going to throw a lot of numbers at you guys here. Um, Sweet. I think Charlotte was already last year one of the more underrated teams, um, even if you just look at their 48 wins. Uh, simple rating system, which looks only at margin of victory and their strength of schedule, had them as the ninth best team in the league. Um, Pythagorean wins, which looks only at points scored and allowed, uh, had them winning an extra game. This is a team that finished ninth in offensive rating and eighth in defensive rating, and they've been so much better with Michael Kidd-Gilchrist on the court. So last year, he only played 205 minutes because of all the shoulder injuries. Their net rating improved by 13.5 points per 100 possessions when he was on the court, which is not a fluke because the year before that, during the 1588 minutes that he played, it improved by 12.2 points per 100 possessions. This team is better with him on the court, even if it creates some some questionable fits with spacing. Um, I don't know that there's any reason to believe that he's not going to be healthy. He's just suffered a couple fluke injuries. Um, I, there, there, again, there are, there are a lot of concerns, especially what Dan brought up, possible regression from Kemba Walker, um, trying to figure out how to, how to give minutes to Hibbert and how to, how to make sense of a weak second unit. But this is a really good team. I'm not, I'm not totally devastated by the loss of Jeremy Lin either. I, I think we've gotten to a point where he might be a little overrated again, um, I think, I think he's just better than the alternatives that are on there. Well, what I was going to say is I think he is a he, he's a slight upgrade to Ramon Sessions, and I I, I would say that's mostly because Whoa. of defense. But um, Sessions, off, like n- numbers wise, Sessions is better than him offensively. And I don't know what session how how Sessions impacted. What was he on Washington last year? Mm-hmm. I don't know how he impacted their their net rating when he was on the floor. But just statistically, he's a slight upgrade offensively. Um, he's still worse than him in terms of overall value because of his defensive numbers. But I don't think it's going to be this like fall off a cliff at the backup point guard position, especially when you have a wing like Batum who handles the ball so often anyway. Right. Uh, is Batum healthy though? He didn't really look great during the Olympics. Uh, France in general looked weird, but that's a different yeah. story. <laughs> um, just again, my thing is you're banking on a lot of career seasons being built upon. I don't know if you get the same yeah, from Kemba Walker and Marvin Williams, and I, I already said that. Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, I assume he'll be healthy, but he's an offensive minus if he doesn't have even a mid-range jump shot at this point, and he really hasn't improved that much statistically since entering the league. So, so that's a concern if you're looking to maintain the same level of offensive efficiency. And no, I don't think the losses of Courtney Lee or Jeremy Lin are going to cripple them, but I, I like Courtney Lee a lot better than Marco Bellinelli. Yeah, that's a bigger I, I, loss I, than Lin to me, but go ahead. I like Jeremy Lin better than Ramon Sessions or Brian Roberts at this point. Maybe if you get some kind of elite from Jeremy Lamb, that's something you can look at. I'm just not inclined to say they're first. I would probably put them in the same range as the Wizards at this point, between 45 and 48. I'll just say that they're a tie for second place. But I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised that you guys have them first because they have what seem to be a lot of question marks as well. They're, they're by no means on the same level as the Heat, and you could totally see them replicating last year's success. But I could also see them dropping back substantially too. And we, we've already kind of saw them do that once where – 
they made the playoffs and then they really bought into it and then they just weren't as good and then it took them a year to find themselves into last year and now they're sort of doubling down on that again. So it just seems like a lateral off season for them and I don't think they're a team that's going to crack the 50 win mark or 48 49 mark and that's what it's going to take to win this division is what I assume. Yeah, I think high 40s will win the division, which is that's probably where I'd peg them. Um my only other point in defense of my uh prediction for them is how many above average defenses did Steve Clifford field with Al Jefferson playing like heavy minutes. And now um, while Roy Hibbert is sort of a dinosaur in the same way that Jefferson is, he's uh, he's better on the defensive end, whereas Jefferson was like all offense, no defense. Um, so I just I think the pieces are still in place for him to be able to field another solid to really good defense. Um, I think their most important offensive players are back. I think everybody now that they've had some time in that role are going to improve within those roles. I again, I think it's a fair point that you're you're saying about, you know, we're kind of banking on them repeating career years. But um, I've said it more than once now. It's just everything looks like it kind of clicks to me. We also need to at least mention Marvin Williams, who is coming off a career year, but it looked pretty sustainable. Like he's turned into a great shooter and a solid defender at power forward. Now yeah, that think- coaches aren't trying to play him at the three. And beyond yeah. that, Frank Kaminsky was actually a positive defender during his rookie yes. season because Steve Clifford is so good at this. Um, so as, as he grows, I think that front court is going to improve along with him. Um, so I guess I'll be the contrarian here and say they get to 50. Yeah, but I'm with you on me, Marvin they- Williams. Like it's, the reason it's sustainable to me is because it's all about a coach finally finding the right role for him where he just got him to buy in on the defensive end, and then on offense, he's a catch-and-shoot three-point guy. He's like a perfect stretch four for the modern NBA. Yep. Even if they get to 50, I, I, I just maybe I'm just that bullish on the Hawks still, uh, even after they lost out Horford. I do like the Hornets. I could see them being better than the Wizards, but I, I don't think it's clear-cut where they're going to be better than Washington and Atlanta. To me, they're neck-and-neck neck with Washington – well, which is fine, and there are a few things that could break right, and I love Marvin Williams. It, it, he does look like he can keep up what he did last season, and he was one of the most versatile players in the league. He had one of the most versatile seasons in NBA history statistically, so that, that's all good, but I just don't know that this team made a leap or is going to make a leap. Even if you look at MKG as a free agency acquisition their their defense should be phenomenal but their offense there's just so many ifs there that i can't buy into them as this 50 win formality at this point well it's saying their ceiling is 50 51 wins really saying 50 is a formality but you're you're saying they're i think they have a higher yeah i think they have a higher ceiling than any of the other teams in this conference who's your question mark on offense besides mkg is kemba walker gonna shoot the backup the, okay, the I guess, yeah. As well as he did last season. What are you going to get so, from Marshall I don't, Bellatelli? I don't know that it's, fa- that it's as fair to question what Kemba did last year just because it's been a sustained growth. It's not like he suddenly spiked. It's over the course of the last couple of years, he's been consistently improving on both ends, and he reached that apex this last year. And I think that that, that type of career development lends itself more to sustainability than having that random spike a la Derrick Rose in 2012. 
I, I'm not sure what – this three-point thing hasn't been a progressive growth for him. His volume has remained steady per 36 minutes since he entered the league until last year when he jacked up more threes and shot them at 37.1% when he had never even cracked 335 That's That's my question with that's, him. His production the should be there. The overall production has been steadily climbing. Right, and that, that's fine. And his defense has steadily improved for the most part because you, if, if he really needs to be hit on defense, you're not fielding – a top 10 unit like Steve Clifford has routinely, I buy into that. But the spacing is so important now to me, especially in today's league, and I'm not sure you're going to be able to duplicate what you had last year when you don't have that secondary ball handler in Jeremy Lin, where you have to rely on playing off Nicholas Batum almost solely, where you have a guy like Michael Kidd Gilchrist who isn't going to help create open shots for you because he's such a bad shooter so so those question marks matter to me and again i'm not confident in the bench by any means the backup point guard situation is a little bit iffy and if it does all break right could i see them eclipsing 50 yes but as currently constituted knowing what we know about them and given the question marks i don't know how we can peg them as the division favorite that's more surprising to me than anything that you guys have them as a division favorite forget if you want to argue they're better than the Wizards, that's fine. You could even sway me on that. But to say that they're the division favorite, it, it really – I was kind of surprised that both of you went there. Yeah. Um, I also want to mention their potential small ball unit because I really want to see them play with Kemba, Bellinelli, Batum, Kid Gilchrist, and Marvin Williams at some point during the year. You know what's weird? Kid Gilchrist has – this is just the eye test – and I haven't looked it up statistically, but I've never liked the way he's defended power forwards. It's been so bizarre. He has the size. He's 6'8", but he's always seemed best off on these normal swingmen and wingmen, those twos and threes. And I'm not sure he's proven he can help you at the floor, especially if he can't space the floor with a jumper. Yeah, that's fair. All right, so... <laughs> That leaves that was us. it, Andy. Nothing to add on that. On that. <laughs> well, I was trying to. Um, while you guys were talking, I was I was looking at Kemba Walker's shooting stats. Um, his effective field goal percentage on pull-ups was forty point eight, which actually is not. But he stopped shooting them as much. Yeah, that that's was important. that was the what big I was, thing. I was I was I was kind of trying to undercut Dan while he was talking. I don't know how effective it was, though. Um, <laughs> I think it's, I he think is it's a lot better notable. on the catch-and-shoot because he's in the 90th percentile on um, on catch-and-shoot. So it's, it is going to be important for Nicholas Batum, and maybe that secondary ball handler like they had in Lynn was super important last year. I think it's also notable that even though in 2014-15 he struggled so much from three-point range, he shot 42.3% on twos from beyond 16 feet. So the jumper was still getting better, even if it didn't translate to those threes. So I think that paves the way more for that massive leap that we're seeing this last season from three. I, that, that's fine, but his percentage from that range, while still okay at 37.6 last year, plummeted amid sort of the same volume there. So it's like he's going back and forth, and he's a great player, and – he certainly could make that jump, but to say he's or not jump, but sustain what he did last year, but to assume that at this point just just feels far too presumptive because of how it's gone throughout his career. And again, losing Lynn as that third ball handler who allows you to not only play off the ball more, but 
pulls defenders away from you with his dribble drives. You only have Nicholas Batum to do that right now. You could even argue that Courtney Lee helped him last year because he's a pretty good rim attacker. You're not going to get that from Bellinelli. You're not going to get that from Jeremy Lamb. I'm skeptical that he can maintain that level of efficiency from the outside that he have had last season. I'm also not ready to say that this has been a progression for him from the outside because just looking at his numbers and seeing him play, his shot selection from three and his efficiency feels more sudden than gradual. So I just, I kind of want to put a ribbon on this discussion too. I actually did find what I was looking for. So on catch and shoots, his effective field goal percentage was 64.9 last season and it was 40.8 on pull-ups. So yes, it's his, his increased efficiency looks like it did have a lot to do with uh, being able to spot up off other guys' drives. What was it? I'm curious. Can you see what it was in 2014, 2015? Was he always? If he, if you're going to argue that he's always been good off the catch, and the Hornets were just able to run him off more screens or have that other ball handler to allow him to be open, that's so, an argument. I can that's in your favor. 14, yeah. 14, 15 off the catch. His effective field goal percentage is 49.4. So well, that's that's where oh, the jump came from then. So yeah, it was down 15 percent. Pull up shooting in 14, 15. Uh, it's got to run it real quick. Um, where's his name? There it is. Uh, 37.7. So he was a little bit better there. But the the jump, like Adam said, was definitely on the catch and shoots. It went up about 15%. It's probably easier to make a leap in catch and shoots, too, is what I will give you, and then sustain it. Because catch and shoots for professional players are some of the highest percentage easiest shots to knock down but again to assume it just just seems to be too much for me right now apparently we just disagree a lot in this division it's awesome we need that sometimes Dissension um, in the ranks the only team we haven't talked about then is the hawks who so do you two have them do you both have them as the second best i team? would put them second it sounds like dan's got them first so i'll Maybe Dan should start talking about them first, since he's the highest on them. Right, and I love Paul Millsap, so let's get that out of the way. Everyone, Top 10 that's, player. That, that's fair. Top 10 player. I love Kent Bazemore, what he does for this team. I think Torian Prince was. What, did you just call Kent Bazemore a top 10 player? Not a top 10 player. Oh. Um, <laughs> I'll stop interrupting. No, that's fine. I like being interrupted, especially with Snark. I, I just. I don't think they lost too much in the primal nucleus. Yes, losing Al Horford stings. He is far better on offense than Dwight Howard. I would argue he's better on defense as well just because he can defend more positions. But looking at that projected starting five of Dennis Schroeder, Corver, Bazemore, Howard, Millsap, that seems like a lateral defensive move to me because you upgraded at point guard with Schroeder. I love that they have... Uh, Torian Prince, I, I think he'll end up being one of the steals of the late lottery. Tiago Splitter is a, a competent backup five who was just injured last year. The Hawks are clearly going for this defense-first identity, and I think they've done it. I, I think that they will be elite on that end more than other teams in their division will be balanced on both sides of the floor, which really helps them. And the biggest thing for me, and I don't know why I believe this, because I've railed against Dwight Howard for years, I don't see him signing in Atlanta under the guise that he's going to be this featured post-up big. 
he was okay on post-ups back in some of his earlier Orlando days. He was never coordinated. It never looked good or polished, but he was just able to barrel through guys, which isn't an option anymore at his age or even in today's uh, NBA when the defenders are far more versatile. I expect him to really embrace that role as a pick-and-roll rim runner and rim protector and defensive anchor on the other side, which is where, even during his heyday, he's been best suited. I just believe that Mike Budenholzer wouldn't have been so high on signing him and trying to sign him in years past if this wasn't going to work. And and so I, I don't necessarily like these Hawks better than last year's Hawks, but I think they've made a lateral move, which is something that should still keep them uh, ahead of the rest of their division. Andy, I'm probably going to talk for a long time, so do you want to go before me? <laughs> sure. Um, I want to piggyback on Dan talking about Paul Millsap. So last year, he had a rebounding percentage of 15.1, an assist percentage of 16.4, a block percentage of 4.1, and a steal percentage of 2.7. Um, so while Dan was talking, I just ran it through the player season finder on basketball reference. So minimum rebounding percentage, 15 assist percentage, 15 block percentage, one steal percentage, two. There are three players in NBA history who've done it. Do you guys want to take a stab at who they are besides Millsap? Raymond Green, one of them. Hakeem, Hakeem, is, and, Hakeem, Hakeem and David Robinson. Hakeem and Demarcus Cousins. Ooh. Um, so those are the three cousins, Elijah and Millsap. And then I sorted it by threes made. Um, <laughs> Millsap made 74. The next closest was one of the Hakeem years with three. So like the, the totality of what he does as a player, I don't, I think it's vastly underappreciated. How good I have a question. And I'm sorry to interject, is. but this is for both of you because Adam watches the Hawks a lot and you watch the jazz a lot back in the day. There was something going around on Twitter, like months ago, maybe even during the season into the summer where, where people were talking about how horrible, of a defender Paul Millsap was for most of his career. I don't ever remember him being really bad. And maybe the Hawks have brought out the most of his versatility, but I don't – was that a thing, Paul Millsap defensive sieve? Was that actually a thing? No, it wasn't. <laughs> I don't remember saying that, but I don't ever remember hearing that about him. Um, and just as you were bringing it up, I was looking at his uh, his numbers, his – He's been a defensive box plus minus of 1.9 or higher in every season except for one when he was oh, at 0.7. No, he's always been great. And defensive box plus minus, just for reference, it's like there are a ton of guys every year in the NBA that are below zero, and he's never even come close to being below zero. So I don't, and just, just from watching him in his Utah days, too, I never, I never got the impression that he was a bad defender. I don't remember his Utah days, which probably doesn't say much he about was, my ex. During that era. What's cool about him to me is like the early Everything. years of yeah, <laughs> but the early years of Paul Millsap, like the first two or three years in Utah, he was very much like Kenneth Fareed, where um, I think he was better, but his calling card was still like come off the bench with play with a ton of energy and grab a ton of offensive rebounds. That was like that was his role, and he started to develop into this more well-rounded sort of combo forward right before he left Utah, but to see it like fully blossom in Atlanta is amazing to me that a guy could go from like basically a slightly better version of Kenneth Freed to like, um, I hope people don't kill me for this, but like a mini LeBron almost just That's with fine. his all around 
I'm fine uh, with that. contributions. It's incredible the way that he's developed over the course of his career. Could you, if the Jazz weren't as far along in their rebuild, and I know Adam is itching to talk, but we could look at them losing Millsap for nothing as one of the like worst decisions bad. in recent NBA history. It doesn't look as bad now because of what they have, but just imagine if you know they there's weren't still, here. There's still a lot of Utah people second guessing that, and like even to the extent that a lot of Utah fans and writers are really looking forward to his free agency. <laughs> so there's <laughs> there's still a lot of people who. Um, didn't really understand the way that that went down. I'm excited for what Adam has to say. <laughs> yeah, me too. So this is definitely a talented team. There's no doubt about that. I wholeheartedly agree with everything we're saying about Millsap. Again, top 10 player in the league. And if you look up and down the roster, there's a lot of talent at every position. A lot of fun young talents as well. Three concerns, though. One is that Dwight Howard is shooting jumpers in practice. That's pretty simple enough. Two is that Dwight Howard is replacing Al Horford. Whether you think that Horford was overrated and Howard was underrated or whatever, and I know that's not what you guys are saying, every single thing that Atlanta did was predicated upon Horford being awesome in every area. On defense, it was all about funneling guys into the lanes, into the paint, so that he could either protect the rim or use his quick hands to deflect outgoing passes. They got a lot of steals on those attempted kickouts. Dwight's never played in that role. He's always been asked to be that last line of defense where he's only protecting the rim. So I can see a pretty substantial defensive decrease because of that. On offense, Horford is like the secondary hub on almost every possession because he's so talented at passing. He's so good at setting picks and rolling into the right spaces. Again, Dwight's never really done that. He's been the pick and roll guy, but he's not asked to serve as a ball handler. So that puts more responsibility on Paul Millsap and Dennis Schroeder which is the last concern. If it's a big assumption to say that Kemba is going to sustain his improvement, it's a gigantic assumption to assume that Schroeder can be as good as Teague was in this starting role. He's been great in flashes, but he's always at his best when he's allowed to control the ball and completely take over the offensive schemes, which isn't what you want to do with this team because it's at its best when there's ball movement and it's flying around and the defenders can't keep up so you get an open shot. So you're asking him to play in a way he's not comfortable. And you're giving him more responsibility to do that. So a lot of concerns here. Okay, my one point. Have we settled on the pronunciation of is it Schroeder? I've heard it every which way. Schroeder. Yeah, it's... My German teacher said the O umlaut is you make the long A sound, but you round your mouth. Yeah. German lesson for you. It is Schroeder, but everyone says it differently still. And I don't even think he really cares that much. No, it's it's like a completely foreign sound to Americans. Yeah. All right, I'll start calling him Schroeder. <laughs> doesn't sound as much fun to say as Schroeder. But yeah, I, I mean, I still think this team only takes a slight dip in the wrong direction and, and stays around 45, 46, 47 wins. But I just have too many fundamental concerns with the way Budenholzer has always run this team with Teague and Horford departing. Like this you're going to have another... to make substantial changes to everything that you do. And by doing that, you run the risk of mitigating the value of guys like Horver and Bazemore. The other thing, too, about that um, is you're kind of counting on a career year from, from Bazemore carrying over. Um, and Kyle Korver is how old now? Like 34, 35? Well, it doesn't matter. You could shoot 39 with his eyes closed. I'm a, what? I, eventually, he's not going to be able to move quite as well uh coming off picks or on defense i i still think he'll be fine this year but 
I think it's reasonable to expect that he takes a slight step back. Um, I'm with you on Schroeder, too. I, I think that he's he's shown flashes of being really good, but at the same time, I there's a lot of times I watch the Hawks. I, I remember this very specifically with the German national team, which is obviously a different situation, but... For him to just put his head down and like take over possession after possession, which is the opposite of what they've tried to establish in Atlanta since since Coach Bud got there. Yep, Andy. One quick question for you. Yes. How excited are you for when Rudy Gobert is dominating in Atlanta? Since we just seem to steal <laughs> XU top players. <laughs> that is, it's wild how often that happens. Damari Carroll, Paul Millsap, Kyle Korver. It's just like one after another. So I'm, yeah, all so I'm no, saying I'm not is that I can't wait that. for Gobert. <laughs> Gobert and Howard front court. <laughs> That's probably the, the most uncomfortable Gobert thing for four. me. I think that was the more uncomfortable thing for me for Atlanta's offseason that they really tried to make Horford and Dwight Howard work, where they probably could have, but Millsap and Dwight Howard makes far more sense. Yeah, that than was Horford. weird to me too. I mean, I I think that Horford can manage to coexist with basically any big man in the league, right? But, but when, Millsap is a better fit. Um. I'm. I just feel like we're overestimating how much they need to change. If you look, if their projected starting lineup, all four of the other guys are plus passers at their position. Even if Schroeder, I said it. There you go. Even if Schroeder isn't what Teague was on offense last year, Teague wasn't that great on offense to begin with. It's, it seems like the bar is, is pretty low there for him. He shot okay off the catch, which is something Schroeder really would have to work on by okay off the catch you mean like he had the best effective field goal percentage on spot ups in the league so you're gonna say that though on how on one what was his volume and two that's not he's never been that guy like that was a last season if you're worried about having Kent Bazemore have a career year when we have to be worried about Jeff Teague having another career shooting year and again the step back on offense is fine with shooter there he looks like just the way he moves on the defensive end, even though his decision-making there still isn't great, that looks like it's going to be an upgrade. And the bigger thing, I guess, is how do you incorporate Dwight Howard pick and rolls uh, into the offense because he's not a, a good passer and to help get other guys the ball. But could we see Howard having a career year as a passer because he's in a system really for the first time that emphasizes all this ball movement? I looked to, look to Robin Lopez last year in New York in the triangle where the ball movement was there in volume. It was purposeless, but it was there in volume and he still <laughs> had a career high assist percentage and it just jumped. What makes you think that Horford who, uh, excuse me, Howard go to Atlanta, a more talented team than New York in a system that is emphasized moving the ball. I could see him making a similar type of jump. He's never going to be anywhere near as good as Horford is. So I, I love Al Horford die on his hill any day of the week. He's phenomenal, but I can see Howard working very easily if he buys in to the role that he's never bought into. And perhaps the most irrational thing about my argument is me believing that he will buy in this time, probably because this is the Hawks, probably because what's happened uh, over the past five years for him, probably because uh, Mike Buttonholzer was so excited about him and he comes from that Spurs culture. So it might be irrational, but I just see this team working, and I I think they're going to eclipse the 50-win mark. I just have this feeling. So just to clarify on Teague's spot-up shooting, he took 114 threes and 121 overall field goal attempts in spot-up situations, and his effective field goal percentage was 73.1, and I lied. He was actually number two behind Troy Daniels. Yeah, the immortal Troy Daniels. 
I, I just I'm not going to you know harp on losing Jeff Teague's spot up shooting. I don't think that that's going to be. No, I, I don't think that's the concern so much as the way he ran the offense because Teague was was like the jittery ball handler who could get to any spot he wanted to, but he was still willing to distribute it and to let the ball swing around. And every possession that Schroeder seems to do well on is the one where he takes over and just commandeers the offense for a couple possessions at a time. If you do that, that's not the Atlanta offense. Fair, but if you're going to, and and let's assume they're going to because you have Dwight Howard, if you're going to need to run more pick and rolls, is Schroeder the point guard you want over Teague? I would say yes in those situations. He's a better dribble penetrator, and he's just more explosive and quicker. It comes over screens a bit faster. Uh, I would rather have him for this team and what they need to do on offense to work than Teague at this point. I'm going to be really high on Schroeder next season. But I don't, I don't think that we can expect that some... much development from him right away here, which There's especially usually... concerns me with Jarrett Jack and Malcolm Delaney as the back. <laughs> There's usually growing pains when somebody's asked to do uh, something a first time. That's that's something that Utah Jazz uh, radio guy David Locke always says. Like, so this is his first time as a starter. It's it's going to take a little bit of time, but I do think that there is a scenario where he's a slight upgrade over Teague. I don't, I don't disagree with Dan on that, but at the same time, I think it's, um, I think it's just as likely that he could really struggle. I, it, it's just a gamble. It's a question mark. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, I agree with Adam in the sense that that's one of my concerns. I guess I'm just more willing to bet on Kemba sustaining his production and, you know, the other guys like MKG on Charlotte making impacts and the young guys getting better than I am on fundamental changes to Atlanta's roster with less talent. And I, so like if I had to put a win total on this team, I, I would say. You do like, have to. <laughs> I would say high 40s, which is the same thing I said for Charlotte. So that's just an indication of, I think, something that we've established over the course of this podcast is this is not an easy division to forecast. Um, I, you could I th- see the, the top four teams. And maybe even the top five, the Magic are like one of the three best defensive teams in the league, being all within like three or four games of yeah. one another. That would be pretty crazy. I could definitely, like I could easily see the top four being shuffled in any sort of weird order. Um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced Orlando has much of a chance to get into that conversation, but I definitely see the top four in that way. Is anyone okay with Atlanta's bench? I um, find myself being strangely no. okay with it. The front court backups are fine in my mind. You go into the back court where the real issues are. So again, next year I will be totally fine with the bench, hopefully. But there's too much reliance on guys who have proven themselves to be one-trick ponies or are just breaking into the league right now. Why are you going to be fine on the okay with the bench next year? Well, it's the same thing with Schroeder. Um, and what, what, Dan, uh, what Andy just said with, with the David Locke quote, um, where these are guys entering – a new role. Uh, you're you're going to have to rely on Torian Prince and DeAndre Bembry and you know Mike Mike Scott and Mike Muscala are going to be asked to play even more now. So yeah, give I think there year. could be a little give bit of an adjustment period for him. I One think the ceiling of this is... team is now higher than it was before they made the moves, but there's going to be some some backsliding. I like the way you put that. I'm just banking on the backslide not being evident. So does that mean that we all have different orders for the division? Because to recap, I had Orlando, Washington, Miami, Atlanta, Charlotte. Yeah, and I had Orlando, Miami, 
Washington, Atlanta, Charlotte. I had Orlando, Miami, a tie for Charlotte and Washington. <laughs> That's a cop out. I, I'll fine. I'll go Orlando. Yeah, how comfortable is that seat on the fence? <laughs> Orla- fine. I'm gonna go Orlando, Miami, Charlotte, Washington, Atlanta. I really uh, am hedging my bet on plus squads with the Wizards and the Hawks. The the Wizards just seem that they might have the most raw talent in this division. When you just, like if Bradley Beal can still be really good if he ever becomes kind of a plus defender, John Wall is a monster. Marquise Morris should be pretty good. Jan Mahimi should be. But they just seem to have again some of them like. But all of have, that is all of that is should and could and not is. I'm banking on it is, and I put them. <laughs> in, they have less question marks than any of the three teams behind them for me. You're going to tell me they have. You're not going to tell me they have fewer question marks than Orlando. They definitely don't have fewer question marks than Miami. I again, I'll listen to arguments for Charlotte, but this roster, which played like a playoff team for that second part of last season after getting. Marquise Morris added talent to the core. And while they're by no means this Eastern Conference contender, I easily see them being the second best team in this division right now with the caveat that you guys made some good points about the Hornets. I guess that's the other question that we need to answer about this division. Is there a single contender in it? No. I, I look at it and I would feel like, East, yeah, contender to even get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Because I, I look at this division, and I'm not sure that I have a team I can pick above Cleveland, Detroit, Toronto, or Boston. Um, I could see Atlanta being Charlotte. a lot better than Detroit. I could see Charlotte I, just, or Atlanta like, sliding into the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah. If, the, if we're saying that's contender level, I could see either of those teams making it. I don't know. I mean, if you I, get I mean, to the final four in the NBA playoffs, you're a contender. Yeah, that's true. But it's like it, in the way the NBA really? is right now, I'm not sure that's like getting in the final four in the East means you got to play Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals. And so I, I think that's where you have to prove that you're a contender. Where yeah, you, like, not, I don't think the Raptors necessarily did that last year. Like they got those two games, but that was still such a lopsided series. Yeah, that's, no one ever expected them like – I still think the only true title contender in the East is Cleveland. I think the Celtics were there. I'm so high on the Celtics, it's probably a little bit sad. <laughs> I, I think they'll cruise past anyone they face in the Eastern Conference Finals if they're healthy. They'll cruise? You don't see a team. You, there's not a team that you could see pushing them to a legitimate six or seven think, game series. I think not Raptors, Capitals last year. I think six games were like. It's just sort of like a foregone conclusion anyway, kind of like it was with the Raptors last year. They won the two games, but never any point was were people outside of Toronto thinking this is falling apart. Yeah, I, I guess that's think. fair. There, there are definitely different kinds of six-game series. Yeah. I think the Celtics could be the team that gives them a legitimate six or seven-gamer. I'm with Dan here. That's right, Andy. I hope, I hope you guys are right because – I Why think do you don't think, like LeBron? I think most of the internet knows how I feel about LeBron James and the Cavaliers. <laughs> um, have we have we put a bow on the Southeast Division preview? Well, I think I, think I can smell some of Andy's bacon burning now that we're mentioning LeBron. Incidentally, <laughs> it is time for... Bacon! Bacon! Where's the bacon? I smell bacon! 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 Gotta be bacon! Only one thing smells like bacon! That's bacon! 
Yes, that's right. It's time for another edition of Burns My Bacon. Uh, it is my turn, and I'm going to be addressing some of the Colin Kaepernick stuff that has been floating around over social media the last few days. There are probably better ways to have made an impact, but I have absolutely no problem with what he did, and I think it's good. You had the just the, the so many divisive points that were made were all just so flawed where it's like, well, you're privileged. Uh, you're, you've made all this money, so you don't have to worry if teams don't want you after this. Then more like NFL players who are quote-unquote privileged and have all this money should be speaking out because they have that security to help make the guys who don't maybe feel a little bit more secure. Uh, did you Clay Travis pointing out that Colin Kaepernick was grew up with like that white family? Hey, Clay Travis. I don't know if it was like opulence, but they looked happy. That's exactly the point that Colin Kaepernick was ma- making, that not everyone's as blessed as certain people, including him, in their situations. I just feel like we should, regardless of what you think he could have done better, I don't think you can look at it and say he did anything wrong. If anything, you should be able to appreciate the sentiment, even if you believe it was flawed, even if you believe he could have done something else. And I think all the veterans coming out for Kaepernick, that hashtag on Twitter, veterans for Kaepernick, that really that sealed it for me. Like We're reading into this whole stars and stripes thing, like the national anthem is actually viewed as a big deal by everyone. We stand up reflexively. We don't most of us, no one like here, not many people hear this song. Uh, and my best friend is one of my best friends is a veteran of the Marines. He doesn't hear this song and just start bleeding red, white, and blue. The song means different things to different people, and it's not recognized in this profound matter that everyone thinks that it is. And, and so, the fact to think that he was disrespecting the flag or the country or, or the army is just so asinine. Like, I, I don't, it just seems like conservative to the fullest extent. Yeah, my dad is also a veteran. He was in the Army um, during Vietnam, stationed in Okinawa, so he didn't actually have to fight, thank goodness for me. Um, but he, he basically has the same point of view where you know, all, all the veterans aren't fighting so that you can stand up and, and praise the flag. They're fighting for the freedoms that that, that, that flag represents. And to say, that, to say that Kaepernick isn't allowed to express his point of view and, and make that stance – is kind of oxymoronic. And I guess I can't really speak for, for every veteran and everyone has different takes on it, but the, the people that I've spoken to, that's the, that's the understanding they have. Same. And isn't the other issue here that these issues, I know people said he wasn't specific enough, even though I think Kaepernick's explanation was more specific than most of the athlete speak that we typically get, but these issues are so nuanced that when players are going to make a stand, are you going to go for that specific approach? Or is it better and maybe more, uh, or it's going to reach more people if you try and put, lump these issues under an umbrella, in which case, no, you're never going to speak perfectly. The stand is never going to resonate perfectly, but you're going to reach the wider audience. You're going to have the wider conversation, which in the end needs to be the goal. And I, that's what people, I, I think, aren't looking at here is it doesn't matter if what you that you're saying he's not being specific enough or if you don't believe in what he's standing for he's trying to tackle a huge issue like it doesn't need to be nuanced it just doesn't because when you get there i don't think that incites as much conversation as there needs to be so i'll jump in as the conservative on the podcast um 
so my take is like, yes, he's absolutely free to, you know, make whatever protest he wants. Um, I acknowledge the fact that America has had some extremely dark things in its history. Uh, obviously slavery, Jim Crow laws, uh, separate but equal, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's frankly and utterly disgusting. And I think in a lot of ways it has, it has really, it's made it difficult for, uh, African Americans to have upward mobility in the same way, um, that it does for white Americans. I think any conservative who would deny that is just denying obvious facts. Uh, at the same time, the basic principles that America was founded on and the basic principles that the flag is supposed to stand for um, have, have led to more upward mobility than any other society or country in the history of the world. And so in that sense, I, I'm, I'm a person who respects the flag and, and all that, but at the same time, I'm not going to be one of those who's uh, up in arms over Colin Kaepernick protesting an issue that he feels strongly about. And like you said, there was all those veterans who came out on Twitter the other day saying, yeah, that's why we fight is, is for people to be able to have that voice, to be able to make the stands that they want to make. Um, another point that I would, that I would make where I would kind of be on your side, which is kind of, um, a double standard. Uh, I'm sure you guys have seen the meme going around on social media now where Donald Trump, um, he's founded, oh, his, yeah. he's founded his entire campaign on, uh, the slogan, make America great again, which obviously implies that it's not currently great. And, and a lot of people have uh, celebrated him for that. And a lot of those same people are the ones who are, who are very unhappy with Colin Kaepernick for saying that America is not great in certain ways. So there's definitely a double standard in the way that some people look at it. I understand um, him wanting to make the point that he's making. I understand the freedom of protests. Um, so I guess maybe like long story short, maybe I fall somewhere in the middle. Nice guess, hedging. To me, <laughs> I think it's an it's an okay issue to hedge on. Um, well, because yeah. there's so much nuance to it. But I, I would think that one of the most patriotic things that you can do is to acknowledge that the society you live in isn't perfect, and even if America has provided African Americans with more upward mobility than any nation in the history of the world. Uh, that doesn't mean it's perfect. No, and it probably yeah. never will be. No, and that's, and but I don't, I don't think to, there's anything wrong with to, striving to consistently try to make it better. Nor and do to I. do that, uh, to do, uh, excuse me, wow, that was awful. To that point, I, I don't necessarily think uh, there's always going to be imperfections, but at what point do we stop celebrating that, hey, we're technically better or viewed better, our society's better than all these other countries? Like there's more upward mobility, there, there's more diversity, more acceptance than some of these other countries. At, at what point do you stop celebrating that? Because we're not, you know, completely desegregated. We're, there are still racists out there. There are so many flaws, and I think we've tooted our own horn enough as a country uh, over time. You, you can't always just cele celebrate the progress because that's where complacency is born out of. So I don't have a problem with him sitting during the national anthem and, and and the even bigger issue is these people that are just coming out and who probably haven't given thought when they stand up to the national anthem uh that they haven't given thought before to what it means or, or what they think it means and yes it's good that maybe they're not thinking about it but i would argue that a majority of the people stand up reflexively just because everyone else does it at games and, and they wouldn't be offended 
otherwise if this wasn't such a whole uh, a high profile athlete. So the whole the whole situation to me seems bizarre because to say he shouldn't have then sat down during the national anthem is to kind of go against what we're arguing. To say that this is sort of a a free country and and then to argue against his choice, it's just it's just so conflicting and the views don't the conflicting views to me just don't make any sort of sense. I also think it's an interesting thing to protest because the national anthem is like the ultimate symbol of the country and the patriotism. But it was written by Sir Francis Scott Key, who once tried to bring legal action against an abolitionist and actually wanted him to be put to death for spreading that message. And we only sing the first verse of the national anthem. One of the later verses glorifies slavery and the killing of slaves. So symbolically, it might actually be a pretty good thing for him to protest. Yeah, the history yeah, I mean, on that is... That's a phenomenal point. <laughs> yeah, I saw some of the stuff on the history too. And um, I actually, I knew there was more than one verse to the national anthem. And uh, one of them I actually really liked. But I had never heard of that one that you just mentioned until a couple of days ago. And it was kind of like, ooh, yeah, that's... Almost like the textbooks want to leave it out. <laughs> yeah, a little bit... Yeah, a little bit scary. Um do you guys have anything else to add on that? Nope. Nope. In that case, uh, we have wrapped up another edition of the Hardwood Knox podcast, um, our Southeast Division preview. Uh, if you want to follow any of us on Twitter, you can do that. We would appreciate it. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. Adam is at Frommel09, F-R-O-M-A-L-09. Dan is at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. The show is at hardwood knocks and uh, as always you can find the feed on multiple platforms uh, apple podcasts uh, blog talk radio stitcher you can subscribe to us or favorite us any of those spots you can rate us at any of those spots we'd really appreciate it uh, we will be back uh, soon i we haven't really scheduled the date but in the next few days i'm sure we'll start the western conference um the superior conference in my opinion uh don't don't at me. Um, <laughs> with that, I, I leave you with the obligatory, obligatory shout out to Bino Udri. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah. Where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port end of number not currently active on T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.